if you had the perfect opportunity to get revenge on someone who hurt you, what would you do? If you were in a position to determine the fate of someone who's haunted your thoughts and memories, even for years, how would you handle it? I wonder if who you're thinking of. I wonder if there's someone that comes up into your mind who's caused you pain, perhaps a family member, perhaps it's someone you considered a friend, maybe even a fellow church member. Do you think, oh boy, if I could just get them to experience a measure of the pain they've caused me, how satisfying that might be. Do you think you could find the moral strength to let them off the hook if it were up to you? Well, if we answer that too quickly, you know, with kind of a thoughtless, oh, of course not, I would never do that, you might miss an opportunity to reflect on what's really in your heart. And more importantly than that, to reflect on what God has done for you in the gospel. In Genesis chapter 45, Joseph has such an opportunity to exact sweet vengeance upon his brothers. Joseph has spent the last few chapters testing his brothers to see if they've changed in the 22 years since the, their acts of hatred and violence toward him when he was a teenager. In the last of those tests, in chapter 44 that we looked at last week, he set up Benjamin, the youngest, to look guilty of theft and sentenced him to remain in Egypt as a slave while the others returned. And then he left it in their court to see how they would respond. Will they once again allow the young favored brother to take the fall so that they might gain position and advantage for themselves? And as we saw last week in a surprising move, Judah, of all people, stepped forward, stepped into the gap, placed himself in the place of Benjamin and pleaded with the governor of Egypt, who he doesn't yet know is his brother Joseph, pleaded with him to take me instead. Let me remain and be your slave and send the boy and his brothers home. And now, in the first verses of Genesis 45, we see Joseph's response to Judah's self-sacrifice. We're going to read just the first three verses. So look with me, Genesis 45, verses 1 to 3. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Well, Judah's obvious act of self-sacrifice and concern for the family 
at his own cost is more than Joseph can bear. His heart wells up with love and mercy and compassion, and he can't hold it in anymore. He can't continue the disguise of this this distant Egyptian ruler. He has to make himself known. And so he has all the Egyptian servants leave him so that he's alone with his brothers when he makes himself known to them. We're told that he weeps aloud, so loud that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And that's the third time, by the way, in the course of this narrative that we've heard of Joseph weeping. I just want to mark that and have you keep up with that. Back in chapter 42, verses 18 to 20, when he overheard the brothers arguing among themselves in Hebrew and saying, we are guilty concerning our brother's blood, and that's why all this has come upon us. And Reuben saying, I told you not to harm the boy. Joseph wept when he heard those words and those confessions among themselves. In chapter 43, verse 30, he wept when he saw Benjamin. He had to hide himself to not reveal his identity to them. But when he saw that Benjamin was alive and well, he recused himself and wept again. And here is the third time that he is weeping aloud as he reveals his identity for the first time in 22 years to his brothers. The pretense is gone. The guise is broken. It is just Joseph and his brothers. And the first thing he asks is, Is my father still alive? That's a little bit interesting, perhaps, because he's already asked them that. But now that all of the pretense is gone, and now that there's not this this distance between them because they think he's someone else, he's asking them in this personal way, you know I am Joseph. Is my father alive? He wants to know. He wants to be clear on this because he's seen Benjamin now, but he still hasn't seen his father And so he asks them, knowing who I am now, is my father alive? And the brothers are not able to answer him. I love this phrase at the end of verse 3, for they were dismayed at his presence. Sometimes the Bible is funny in its sort of economy of words. They were dismayed at his presence. Just put yourself in their shoes for a second, and dismayed feels like a bit of an understatement. What in the world is happening? The last few months they've been back and forth and before this Egyptian ruler several times, he's kept some of them in prison and he's threatening now to take another one and now he's revealed, I am Joseph. And it takes them a minute to get their minds around this. They're dismayed, which can mean a couple of things. I think it probably means both in this context. Number one, they are shocked. Just utterly amazed. First of all, Joseph is alive? It would have been reasonable for them to think that he probably died in obscurity after years of hard labor as a slave when they sold him as a slave in Egypt. So they probably think he's long gone. And not only is he alive, he's in charge, he's a ruler in Egypt. None of this makes any sense. We've been following the story. We know how this came about. We know that the 
man who bought him as a slave was a, an important Egyptian official, Potiphar, and he served in that house and, in fact, rose to prominence within that house and gained the trust of Potiphar, and then that he was falsely accused and thrown into prison, and that he, in prison, gained the trust of the prison guard and rose his way up in the ranks within the prison and became sort of in charge of all of the operations there and guarding all of the other prisoners. And then that he interpreted these dreams of Pharaoh, and then the cupbearer remembered the, uh, the, 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 dream, uh, the dream teller when he, two years after the fact, when Pharaoh had these dreams. Oh, I remember this Hebrew in prison who told dreams. We followed this story, so we understand how all these pieces fit in place. But his brothers don't know any of that. The last they saw Joseph, he was on a caravan to Egypt to be sold into slavery. 22 years ago, and now they find themselves bowing before him, and he's an Egyptian ruler. So they are shocked. They are utterly amazed. You probably wouldn't be able to speak either. But they're not only shocked, they're also terrified. Because if Joseph wants revenge... We are toast, because nobody can keep him from it. He's a ruler in Egypt. He is like Pharaoh himself, Judah said to him in chapter 44. If he decides on vengeance, we're all gone. So we're amazed, we're shocked, we're stunned that he's alive and that he's a ruler in Egypt. And then once that begins to dawn on us, we are utterly petrified. Because all he's got to do is say, guards off with their heads, or whatever, and they're gone. Does he? Is that what he wants? Now that Joseph has revealed his true identity to his brothers, and they are stunned in disbelief, is this the moment that he'll bring the hammer down and get his long-awaited justice? What's in Joseph's heart toward his oppressors? Let's find out. Look at verse 4 through 8. We're going to pause after verse 8. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. So far, this could still look like vengeance. Get closer to me. Right? Remember what you did to me? Look at verse 5. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. This is surely not what the brothers are expecting when he finally reveals himself to them and invites them to draw near. Surely they're expecting the other shoe to drop for that justice that they've been aware of. God has found out our guilt, Judah said in the last chapter. 
Surely they're waiting now for justice to come. But instead, Joseph extends unbelievable mercy. His kindness to them here is evident. He invites his brothers to draw near, not so that he can harm them, but so that he can comfort them. I can see that you're afraid. I can see that you're dismayed. Come near to me. And then he reassures them, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. What kindness, releasing them from guilt, showing them that he does not hold their offenses against them. You might think otherwise over the last few chapters where he's been putting them through these tests. Is he just toying with them? Is he just stretching this out? No, he's been trying to expose what's in their hearts. Do they recognize the error of their ways? Have they been confronted with their own sin? Are they in a posture of repentance before God and convinced that they are? Especially by Judah's speech at the end of chapter 44, he has no intention to do them harm, but to gather them in, to reconcile himself to them, to restore relationship among the family. Staggering mercy. Is that what you would do? Is that what I would do? Hard to say. But it's impossible to, not, to deny that the forgiveness and mercy that Joseph extends to his brothers is compelling. Maybe even convicting. Because if you're like me, you might go... If I were in Joseph's shoes, I'm not sure I would have been so patient. I'm not sure I would have been so merciful. If I had the perfect opportunity to exact vengeance with no consequence, I'm not getting in trouble for this. I'm the top dog. One of the reasons I think that Joseph is able to find this moral strength to forgive is revealed in what he says to them about why they should not be distressed and angry with themselves. He doesn't say, because it wasn't a big deal. Oh my goodness, it was a big deal. It was heinous, horrible evil that they had committed against him. It was, to use the word properly, traumatic for Joseph, I am sure. Not that it's not a big deal, but he's got his eyes on something else. Look at verse 5. Don't be distressed or angry with yourselves. Why? Why? For God sent me before you to preserve life. He is keenly aware of what God is up to in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the turmoil. Indeed, even through the acts of sin and violence that his brothers committed. It's not you who sent me here, but God. Well, at a purely human level, it was them, of course. He wouldn't have ended up where he was if he wasn't first in a pit where his brothers had thrown him and then taken out of the pit and sold to Ishmaelite traders who were on their way to Egypt. 
He wouldn't be there if it weren't for them. So of course it was them who sent him there. But that's not the way he looks at it. There's a bigger picture. There's a helicopter that goes up above all of the actions and choices and circumstances and sees this is what God is doing. This is the story that God is writing. And while being in the pit is miserable, and while being enslaved is horrible, and while being mistreated and forgotten is painful, God is redeeming his people even through that. God sent me here, why? To preserve a remnant on earth. Remember the story that's being told in the book of Genesis. It's, we've been zeroing in here on Joseph and his journey, but this is just one chapter in the story of Abraham's family. The promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, I will make of you a great nation, and through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God is redeeming a people for himself, and ultimately all the world, he's reconciling all things to himself, we're told in the book of Colossians, through Christ. God is telling this really big story of redemption, and Joseph in the role that he is in in Egypt as ruler, as governor, knowing about the famine and able to stock up all the food and be prepared for these seven years, God is preserving for you, he says to his brothers, that is for the family of Abraham, a remnant on the earth. He's keeping the covenant family alive. He's keeping the promise of that seed alive. If Joseph hadn't been there in this position and the famine came, the family of Abraham would have been wiped out and the rest of the Bible would never have been written and you and I would have no hope. I'm here standing before you as a ruler in Egypt, not because you sinned against me, which you did, but because God intended for me to be here so that he could preserve a remnant for you on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. He's also extending his grace and his blessing to the world, keeping many alive. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. If we're going to survive the hardships and the sufferings that we endure in a fallen world, if we're going to be able to withstand the pain and hurt and violence done to us by other people, even other family members, covenant family members, we have to have our eye on the big story that God is writing. We have to know this is not for nothing. There is no suffering that's wasted. God is telling his story of redemption and this chapter that I'm in, though it feels like death, is just a part of his story that when we see it in its fullness, we will weep for joy at its beauty. His speech continues. The brothers are still slow to, slow to speak. And so in verse 9, he carries on. And now he's going to urge them to go and tell his father. 
and to bring their family to Egypt. And so he says in verse 8, so, excuse me, verse 9, hurry up and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now, so that was the, that's what he's saying, go say this to my father. Now in verse 12, he begins just to address them. So he's talking to the brothers now. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. Right? You know who I am now. It's clear. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. Number four. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Finally, in verse 15, they can speak. <laughs> Go and get my father and bring him here and all the family and all the herds. He tells them to come and settle in the land of Goshen. And in case the brothers were uncertain whether Joseph really had the authority to designate a whole chunk of the land of Egypt for them, the very next verses tell us that Pharaoh, after perhaps overhearing all the crying and somebody looking into this, what is all the commotion over there, Pharaoh finds out, look at verse 16, when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I, this is Pharaoh, will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat of the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours." The continued favor that Joseph has with Pharaoh is surely another sign of Yahweh's presence and blessing. We saw it in the prison, or in the house of Potiphar. Yahweh was with him and caused all that he did to succeed. We saw it when he was in the prison afterward. Yahweh was with him and blessed all that he did. And here yet again is another visible Prove that Yahweh is still with Joseph. Because think about this. We already know that the Egyptians won't eat with Hebrews. Right? When Joseph feasted with his brothers, they all had to sit at separate tables. Because we were told in that chapter that, uh, that eating with foreigners was an abomination to them. And now Pharaoh comes to learn that Joseph is actually a Hebrew. He's not really an Egyptian. But this doesn't turn him away. This doesn't he doesn't lose his standing with Pharaoh. In fact, he's pleased by it. We also know, we learn later in chapter 46, that shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. So Pharaoh learns that Joseph is a Hebrew and his family are shepherds in Canaan, and he doesn't reject him. Instead, he welcomes his family to settle in the best of the land of Egypt. Joseph's favor with Pharaoh is clearly a sign that the Lord is with him and blessing him. 
And so he extends the best of the land of Egypt. And so Joseph sends his brothers away. Look at verses 21 to 24. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. All right, so the preferential treatment of Benjamin continues. To his father he sent as follows. Ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father for the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, I love this, do not quarrel on the way. Sort of funny at one level. Don't forget the kind of insanity that happens when you guys get sideways with each other. But on another level, what a good word of God to his people. Moses writing this must intend his readers to hear this as a reminder, not just to the sons of Israel, but to their descendants as well. Don't argue with each other on the way. As you're sojourning through this land and through this life toward the promised land that God has set up for us, don't quarrel. And the church of Jesus Christ would do well to hear and heed this exhortation as well. Brothers and sisters, don't quarrel with each other on the way. Agree with each other. Live in peace with each other. This is Joseph's exhortation to his brothers. Understandable and yet utterly relevant to us as well. And so he sends the brothers back to Canaan with all of this stuff. If nothing else, proof that this is for real. How did they possibly come back with donkeys loaded with all of the good things of Egypt unless what they say is legit? And so they head back to Canaan to bring all of these things to their father and to invite him to return. And then the chapter ends with a very brief summary of what may feel like some of the heaviest human drama in all of this. And so it's a little curious that the Lord has seen fit to leave it to our imaginations. But look at verses 25 to 28. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan, their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them, which you can understand. Wait, you told me 22 years ago that he was killed by an animal. What do you mean Joseph's alive and he's ruler over all Egypt? Verse 27. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived, literally lived again. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now, the reason I think it's interesting that so little is shared here is that it's reasonable to assume that the brothers here would have had to reveal the whole story to their father. They can't just say, hey, guess what? Interesting news. Joseph is alive. Let's head to Egypt and brush past that. Wait a minute. What about the coat, the bloody coat that you brought back to me? How is he alive? How is he in Egypt? How is he a ruler in Egypt? How do you know any of this? 
You told me he was dead. They, they must have had to reckon with all of the depth of the deception and the evil that they had perpetrated, not just against Joseph, which would have been hard enough, but against their father, whom they willfully deceived. But we're not told about it. The only glimpse we have of it is later in chapter 50, from the mouths of the brothers to Joseph after Jacob has died, which makes this a little dubious as to whether it actually happened, the brothers say to Joseph, before our father died, he told us to tell you that you should forgive us and not hold our evil against you, against us. You'd be forgiven for thinking, I don't know if he really said all that. He's not here to defend himself now or to verify it, but the brother's saying, oh, I promise you, he said that you should be merciful to us. So I don't know if that really happened or not. Maybe, maybe it did. We must assume that Jacob by this point knows the truth. And his heart is numb at first. Anybody identify with that? Sometimes stuff is just so heavy and hard and weird that it's just like, I don't even know what I feel. Just numb. That's how he feels at first. But then as they talk to him, they tell him the story, and then he sees the wagons and the donkeys that are loaded with all the good things of Egypt, and these wagons that they carry them back to Egypt. He believes them, and his heart is revived. His spirit is revived. Literally, it lived again. I will go and see him before I die. If you identify yourself with Joseph in this story, it's pretty hard to conjure the strength to let our oppressors off the hook. If I'm the innocent one, and I've been mistreated, what comes most naturally to me is not mercy, but revenge, retaliation, consequences. So if you identify yourself with Joseph, yeah, I'm the Joseph in this story. It's probably pretty hard to imagine letting them off the hook like this. But I wonder if forgiveness might come a bit more naturally to us if we identified ourselves not with Joseph, but with Joseph's brothers. You see, maybe we're not the innocent ones suffering unjustly at the hands of sinners. What if we're the guilty ones cowering at the feet of one whom we have gravely offended, pleading for mercy? And what if, like Joseph's brothers, what comes showering down upon us is not the hammer blow of revenge, but the kisses and tears of reconciliation? If you're in Christ, this is your story. In Christ, you have been forgiven all your sins and rebellion against God. You've been spared the eternal penalty that justice demanded. And so, like, jo like Joseph's brothers, the punishment that's expected and deserved escapes you and is absorbed by the innocent one instead. Joseph's invitation to his brothers, come near to me is Jesus' invitation to us. While we stand trembling at the door, he waves us in with kindness in his voice, 
drawing us near to himself in love and acceptance. Joseph's explanation of God's purposes. God sent me before you to preserve a remnant on earth, to keep alive many survivors, is an apt description of what Jesus achieved in his death and resurrection, securing eternal life for all who would believe upon him. And Joseph's reassurance to his brothers, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because of your sin, is really just another way of saying there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And here's the thing. If God hasn't condemned the sinner that's caused you grief, perhaps you shouldn't either. Let's pray together.